Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Hugh Edwards of Cyber Fortress. Hugh, how are you doing? I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much. Good. And I love to do a little ge- geography uh, check. Um, you're speaking to me from Austin, te- Texas, is that right? I'm f- speaking from San Antonio, Texas, uh, Texas, so about an hour down the road. Uh, but as you can tell from my accent, you know, I'm from uh, West Texas. You know, um, uh, no, I'm from Wales, uh, though I've been living in the States now uh, about 12 years. How does the Welsh accent go down in the, uh, down the States? Is, does it, is it cause for confusion? Do they just assume that you're British of some description? Or Exactly. I mean, it causes a little confusion. Um, most people guess that I'm British, but I do get a lot of like, uh, because of the Welsh versus the traditional English accent or BBC English that they're familiar with. And they think maybe I'm Australian. Sometimes yep. they think I'm South African. Yep. Um, so I get a little bit of that. Yeah. Uh, but, but by and large, the, any variation of a British accent goes down well. Uh, yeah. North, South, East or West, Wales, Scottish, Ireland, England, <laughs> tends to go over pretty well over here in the US. The Australian thing, I, I, I used to get quite a lot. Whenever I've been to the States, people have asked me if I'm Australian. I've no idea why. Um, but uh, that maybe my Essex dulcet tones, I'm not sure. But um, anyway, I digress. Um, obviously, Cyber Fortress, for those of the people that don't know at home, it'd be interesting if you could just introduce uh, you know, what you guys do and, and what you're trying to achieve. Absolutely. So we are an insure tech, a startup, and, and we're reinventing the way the risk of doing business on the internet is assessed and priced. Um, and what that looks like right now is, is you know, we've sort of built a proprietary underwriting model to price downtime of websites. Uh, and we have our first product in market, which is basically a parametric uh, insurance product for e-commerce that pays out lost revenue when their websites are down um, based on how many hours they're down and payment made within 24 hours. And when uh, is that live now? That's that's it is live. It's live in sort of a it's live in Texas uh, for e-commerce companies in Texas um, looking to expand uh, more nationwide. Also looking to partner with some larger service providers, because our vision here is is that it's as easy to add as the travel insurance to the flight, you know, and looking to embed when you're signed up for some hosting or domain. Can you, you know, one check add, hey, I want to protect the online revenue. I want a revenue guarantee for 23 bucks a month. Check it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. Great model. So much going on there. That's like, um, that's like uh, insure tech buzzword heaven, parametrics, embedded insurance. <laughs> we're just, we're, just we're, we're there. A bit of business interruption. I mean, it's just, uh, look at that. <laughs> we've, got the, we've got the trifecta there, right? Yeah, exactly. I know. What, we, what are we going to unpack first? I mean, I think um, one thing I wanted to come back to is just the, what's, what's currently the distribution model? How are you, how are you getting it out there? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're still a super early stage company. We're five people. Um, we've, you know, really built this proprietary model um, and 
and we're looking to get it, you know, find the right partners to get that out there into the market. We're selling directly on our website right now, but that's not our target vision. And so we have a couple of, um, you know, our pipeline, a couple of big partners in our pipeline, like digital brokers, but also like, you know, web hosting partner, potential partners. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and so that's kind of interesting there because, you know, the embedded insurance, it's still early, but like, you know, being embedded as a guarantee um, in, you know, because everyone's online right now and their sites being down is just like unacceptable. Mm. Now, most service providers have large uptime guarantees for their service. But the truth is, is that people's websites go down usually because they make mistakes because they're human. We're all human and we're small, but you know, we're focused on small businesses and small businesses don't have big teams. They're growing quickly, trying to like add customers, update products, you know, scale, learn, adapt. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and of course, using a parametric uh, trigger, presumably there's none of that kind of complication of going, was it your fault or not? It's just like, it's down, kicks exactly. it, pays out. Is, is that Precisely. Right? And that exactly. And sort of, you know, my prior, my background is sort of finance, also technology at a large cloud provider called Rackspace here in Texas. That's what brought me down here. Um, uh, but most recently, prior to Cyber Fortress, the genesis of that was a business I bought that was cybersecurity software for small businesses. And it was serving those small businesses there that we sort of realized that as well, that small businesses don't have working capital. Mm. They don't have cash on hand. And when you when we spoke to them about their insurance, you know, that wasn't a great experience. I mean, that's a pretty common, you know, I'm sure a lot of people on your podcast, you know, this is a common theme. There's a lot to uh, opportunity. There's a lot of great stuff in insurance. There's a lot of opportunity for improvement. And we've seen incredible, you know, evolutions and leaps and bounds in recent years. But that whole getting paid out quickly thing um, uh, is really challenging for a small business. Mm -hmm. And so that's for us, it was sort of, okay, your site is down how many hours down over a waiting period, boom, pay out. Uh, and similarly as well, it's like for a small business, they don't really care why they're down, right? Mm -hmm. And so what's neat about us is, is that in our underwriting, we capture the human element. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not that we're sort of right in an unchecked risk here. We collect downtime on hundreds of thousands of e-commerce domains. And so that's if they're up or if they're down. And we're doing that every sort of 10 minutes for, you know, about 500,000 e-commerce domains in the U.S. right now. Mm -hmm. um, and that allows us to build a picture of downtime, you know, how often frequency of downtime events, how, how long, how severe, severity. Um, and we can actually use that to price. But the cool thing is, is like, we don't know why they're down. And lots of, most of those events are actually because of their own mistakes, et cetera. So what we're, our underlying data is congruent with what we're offering the policy, which protects cyber attacks, software issues or glitches, um, third party failures, you know, and that could be a Shopify issue, but it could be electrical grid that impacts Google, that impacts Shopify, that have multiple, you know, contingencies there. And also it covers like, you make a mistake updating that product um, or you, you know, try to add a new plugin and it has some conflict and has an issue and brings your site down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this, yeah, it's so, there's so much going on there, but I think, I think the one thing that you kind of brought it back to is that, you know, the, the risks on the cyber side, and if you've got an online business continue to evolve. And as a business owner, you know, as someone that runs his own business, I have enough problem with my own website, which which is very much a brochure website. It doesn't really do anything. Um, if it's if it went down, it wouldn't be a disaster. It just doesn't look very professional. Um, but you've got enough going on that you don't want to have to worry about this. Is your plan to kind of tie in with some of the kind of 
maybe cybersecurity response teams or like businesses as well? Is that is there is that route you want to go down? Yeah, I mean, for us, it has been more focused on um, where the e-commerce person is right now and what they're buying, who is their trusted provider there. And so they're trusting their hosting provider or their e-commerce platform. And so that's that's a very natural um, point there to either be offered as an add-on or embedded so that someone can say, hey, you know, our hosting is better than yours because we have a no downtime guarantee. And we'll pay out loss, not just an SLA that might pay out a little, you know, some portion of what you paid them last month, but actually like, can pay out a meaningful amount of like what's lost revenue. Um, so that is our true, you know, when we saw this, we're like, it's it's in that it's in that realm of embedded insurance. And I think, you know, the Andreessen, Angela Strange came out with an article in Andreessen recently, which talked again about embedded insurance being the future. You buy the car and it comes with the insurance, right? You're, you, you, you buy a, a maintenance plan at the vet, it comes with vet, you know, pet insurance, you know? You buy a domain from GoDaddy, it comes with cyber insurance, yeah. right? But we're not there yet, right? You know, we're kind of a long way f- in, in many ways from there. Um, so for us, it's really like, you know, what we found as well as a startup, like, and we we knew this going in, we didn't believe that this was a direct to consumer model. But like you ask, you know, any insure tech out there, like it's trying to sell direct, it's really hard, right? And if your product is not mandated by law or required, you know, in your industry or by your vendors or customers or whatever, um, it can be pretty challenging to cut through the noise and get through someone there. So that's where we're also, you know, our sort of parallel paths on that one. And we're quite far ahead with one was with some digital brokers mm-hmm. that are already like at scale. Cause remember, this is a pretty cheap product. We only need a business email address. So we just need their domain, which we can get from the business email address to price the policy. And then wow. how much revenue do they want to cover to scale up, you know, because it's parametric to scale up how much. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. And so it's really kind of someone's buying a business owner's policy in a digital platform and it's all the way, you know, towards the end. And it's like, hey, do you want to protect the online revenue for an extra, you know, in that case, maybe an extra five bucks a month or three bucks a month if they're because they might like their online revenue might not be a huge portion, might not be 100 um, percent or it might be, you know, in their case might be another hundred bucks a month. But that's like an absolute bargain. And for peace of mind that like, hey, you know, I have all this stuff online being sold right now. Um, what happens if that goes down? That's not actually covered in my BOP or my tr- my usual business interruption, which sort of has more more exclusions for online or human error related to online and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think I think generally that's uh, it seems to be that's the small business owners. The problem is that there's an education piece there, right? I, I don't think people are aware of what the risks are, so or how big the problem can be. So. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I was talking to someone about cyber recently in the, in the US market, and there's a lot more kind of high net worth individuals taking out their own personal cyber insurance policies. Mm-hmm. Absolute sense. And as they were telling me, I was sitting there thinking, I've never even thought, I've never, I'm not, I wouldn't put myself as a high net worth individual, but I've never even considered that I might think, oh, actually, I probably could get a personal policy myself, or even yeah. checked how much my business cyber cover is, because you know, I, I don't have uh, sales, but obviously I have data. And, you know, so I, I think there's just a big education piece, particularly on the small business side. Um, mm-hmm. People aren't quite there yet. So I can see where that challenge comes from. And, and that is a real challenge because, you know, by and large, from what we have observed and seen and what is like by and large reported from particularly a lot of the large players and the people we partner with in terms of insurers um, uh, in, the, in the industry, most people who are buying cyber insurance are buying it because they're required to buy it. 
Yeah. Now, you know, you're a Fortune 500 company, you have to buy cyber insurance. You know, your board is going to be, you know, opening themselves up for, you know, some real, you know, class action or any kind of things if they're not, if something does happen and they hadn't procured that. Um, but then it's like you're any small business that, hey, you're trying to land that, you know, land that, you know, a deal with that bigger company. It's a fair point, you know, post target, right? Um, that, that like that a lot of big companies will just like all their vendors have to carry cyber insurance. So, and then again, maybe dependent in certain, as we may see the markets evolve for what's required by law in what industries you might have to carry certain things. And we're going to continue to see that. But outside, and in that case there, people will muscle through. Like if I've got a big client deal there and they say, hey, we, you need to have a cyber insurance policy. We find a broker and go do it. You know, if, if I knew nothing about it, I would like, who's my nearest broker? I don't know what, what you know, my, my, I don't know what I, what I need. Oh, I don't know anything about it, but this is what, I need to tick these boxes. I need to tick <laughs> yeah, these boxes, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and so there's a muscle in through there. And we wanted to solve that, but then everyone else, it's like, oh my God, no thanks. That's too complicated. I don't understand exclusions. Is it even going to be there? Um, but even then, like with us, which is why we're so focused on partnering is because the education piece, like people don't know, right? And so we made the policy so simple. Um, even when you're doing something simple, you know, everyone has preconceptions about insurance. So if it's so simple, they then question that it's actually real, right? So you're <laughs> sort of like a double one, but you only need the business email address. We can do this in a couple of minutes. Like we, you don't need to speak to a human. Like, and you know, we're so built up on that. Like, you know, that's why you see with a number of firms which have done some amazing things in recent years, they're also facing challenges, but like so take someone like Lemonade. Mm -hmm. um, uh, who has done amazing things, also facing some challenges right now based on latest earnings and what I saw in the last couple of days. Um, mm -hmm. But they really, you know, found a way to really have people like sign up on their phones, mm -hmm. you know, in minutes. Um, and that's kind of really cool. But, you know, people need to buy renters insurance. So uh, they have that, there is that need there. Um, it's just fascinating. You try to make something simple and then you, you hit a whole other way, you know, wave of, you know, objections and questions. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, who is someone already trusted? That's that. That's the kind of thing there. Like, and so if you're already, you know, we do, we are not there yet. But like, um, you know, that would be the holy grail, right? For someone like us, would be like to either have our offer embedded in Shopify in some way, where like at a higher service level, Shopify offer, you know, revenue protection yeah. uh, or revenue guarantee, and uh, and it's backed by us. Maybe maybe publicly, maybe just purely behind the scenes, or maybe there's you know, as they you know, Shopify's already. Yeah, I think. I'm not sure exactly, maybe it's half of their revenue comes from uh, payments, right? Yeah. And Shopify pay, you know, and have their white label in that whole Stripe, I think it's a Stripe service there. Um, and so it's really fascinating to me that like, you know, you may see these folks doing more and more, you know, financial services offerings when it makes sense at the right time. Yeah. Um, but uh, until then, you know, that's it. We're just trying to find who is already in a buying decision for insurance and, and oh, can we easily be added? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I definitely think there's a danger in sort of oversimplicity. Um, yeah, it's funny. Some, some things you don't want to be that easy and maybe buying insurance is one of them. It's a bit like, it's a bit like going to the doctor. Like, um, you know, there's a load of stuff we could answer online, but still kind of want to sit in front of someone and tell them, answer the same questions I probably would have done electronically. But um, yeah, I want to there's, there's, I want to sort of take a bit of a pivot in this conversation um, and yeah. 
you and I obviously spoke before this podcast and it's, it's probably yeah, something we connected on was we were talking about kind of coping with adversity. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Um, yeah, you and I shared some stories. Um, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this on the podcast now because then I'll have to do it. But I'm telling you that I just signed up to do my first ultra marathon of 100K. And then, and then you told me some terrifying stories about um, doing lots of ultra marathons. And we got, we got into this kind of coping with adversity. And I really wanted to ask you, you know, you, you've been involved in kind of startups and before not this. Is that the key thing, like to entrepreneurial success, like the ability to cope with adversity? Is, is that because it seems to be like the theme that I speak to people about saying the ability to deal with that is almost above everything else, the, the, the key to success? Um, in your view, obviously, you can't speak. Sure, like absolutely. I mean, I think it is huge. Yeah. Um, the, you know, this is my first startup. It's my second entrepreneurial adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sort of, what are we, 20, 2021, five years into that. From that, you know, my, I previously, you know, basically done, followed a, a corporate life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing with, with, it, with what, what I found with entrepreneurship and startups is like, it's a roller coaster, mm-hmm. right? And there are highs, but there are lows and coping with those lows. And it's that, for me, it's the, the roller coaster is that analogy because it's like, if you're familiar with riding roller coasters, there's two things you could do. There's actually three things you can do in a roller coaster, right? You can hang on for dear life, right? On that, you know, and gripping white knuckling and you're tense and kind of being jarred by the whole experience. And on the other hand, you can let go and just scream. And that is its own kind of total, a little out of control. And then there's that element of just like, just gonna go with it. Yeah. You're gonna feel poised. Maybe I'm holding on, but I'm not holding on too tightly. I'm not like, you know, I'm not then being thrown around because I'm hanging on so tight and jarred. I'm not totally flung around because I've just let go and I'm just like hoping and praying. Mm. Um, and so that's the analogy for me. And it's, it's, it's this idea that like of realizing, I think Andreessen again has, you know, Mark Andreessen specifically over the years has published so much, you know, so much on sort of the blog and his personal blog and stuff about like, you know, a, a startup is basically a, um, uh, an innovation looking for a business model, right? And everyone's going to tell you no. Uh, you know, it's like, because if everyone said yes, then it would already be adopted and it would be de facto and right, you know. So there's that with the adversity, the acknowledgement that like, it's going to be a lot of doors constantly closed. It's going to be a lot of no or like not now and continue to try to like learn, iterate, be creative, be nimble, uh, be flexible and adaptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sort of offer, you know, started it off and I, I love that you put it out there publicly now in the podcast um, about this ultra marathon, this 100K. Uh, I fell into this, uh, the ultras uh, sort of marathons. I went from sort of couch to like ultra and it sounds like you've had a somewhat similar path as well. Like I sort of like never was a runner, yeah. um, but sort of in the space of a year went from like, you know, couch 5K you know, trail marathon attempting a hundred miler. Didn't make it, failed at mile 87. And what learnings I got from that failure. Yeah. And then I've run a lot of ultras since and I've subsequently gone back to that race and finished that race two other times. Um, And and the funny thing there is, is is that the cool thing about ultras is that 
it's a little bit more of a constrained environment, mm. right? Then because life is very multivariable, particularly and startup life is so multivariable. Mm -hmm. um, Ultras is a little more constrained. And so there's a lot more, you're in control yourself and don't have dependencies so much on other people. But then there are all these other things out of your control, like running a marathon is super hard, running a marathon fast, really hard. Um, but most people, if they've trained and they start a marathon, there's not a question of if they're going to finish. There's a question if they run the race they want to run, yeah. get the time they want to get, yeah. have the experience they want. You know, do they start off strong and finish stronger? Do they start off hell, you know, you know, you know, hard as can be and blow up and crawl across the finish line. You know, there's a lot of variability there, but in ultras and any hundred mile run, I think you ask any of the top, you know, you know, the people who are actually running competitively doing these, there, it's not clear if they'll finish the race, mm. right? It's just not because there's so much can happen. Your nutrition, it's an eating competition as much as a as a running or fitness competition because for twenty running for twenty four hours, you've got to fuel. Yeah. And who knows what happens to your stomach? And if you're at altitude, what happens to your stomach? And, you know, what happens to your feet? And what happens to your body? And then the, do you get, I've run ultras in Texas where it's been over 100 degrees. Yeah. And how do you do that? And then I've been runs in Colorado where at night it's dropped below freezing. Um, and how do you, you know, you know, oh, it's got wet. So I had one where I got drenched and then everyone's almost getting hypothermia and you shelter in for like an hour to try to warm up with space blankets to then go back out. I mean, now that was a complete ramble. But yeah. I think the cool thing there is, is that doing ultras or any kind of thing where you're facing some adversity, sort of learn that it's like, this stuff's going to happen, mm. right? It's going to happen. Stuff's going to go wrong. And how I got through it. One foot, in, you know, I, 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 well, ultimately in ultras, you know, take one more step and one more step and one more step. Um, uh, but then there's also the like adapting, like, okay, how, how did I respond to that? How did I deal with like, I couldn't take food down and slow down, rested, whatever, water, how do I slow? What was it? Or the, you know, like I said, the weather or any of these things adapted. And so what's cool then, and this was ultras is, was my field. There's so many other fields, you know, for your listeners here in life that they may be doing. We're facing that adversity or challenge and overcoming it in one aspect of your life can then really help you in others. In particular, for example, entrepreneurship. Mm. And start, it's like, okay, yeah, like this is, this is another one of those. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> another thing that we were sort of talking about, sharing our days and I was saying that I had this lunchtime kind of rant uh, which you know my partner had to sit through and um, she was just kind of listening and and you know it, it, it it's that small business culture and it, it you know that's why I think that's why I wanted to talk about the ultras because I think they're just the perfect analogy like you can you can plan as much as you like what what we can almost guarantee almost not not quite is that you can't rock up at a hundred mile race and then just start to start running and think that you're going to be successful, you know, so you can do as much preparation as possible, but you absolutely guarantee that something is going to go wrong. Many things yeah. are going to go wrong. And, and like you can train as much as you like, but your kind of ability to kind of get back on track one foot in front of the other is, is, is kind of the key. So, I mean, what I think it comes down to is there's a lot of innate stuff in how you're put together your mindset do you think you can learn? Do, do you think you can learn to be an entrepreneur? Because I'm a bit skeptical. I, I, I kind of, I think some people are kind of cut out for it and some aren't. Um, but that's just my opinion. I don't know if that's the right one or not. I think it's a great question. Um, 
Truthfully, I don't know. Mm. Um, I think there's, I think you can train for almost anything. Yeah. Like for example, like I was not a runner. I have memories of coming last in the running race at, you know, in junior school, right? Um, I won't use the word kindergarten. That's what they'd use here in America or whatever, but like, you know, like, yeah. um, and, you know, at sports day and the dash or whatever, I'm coming last. Um, so I never got, you know, and then I'd done some sport. I got into rowing at one point and that was fun. But then I'd like totally, you look at me um, back in 2011 and you would, when I was finishing business school, um, I was not a runner. And I could never have been a runner. Um, but I had a spark and then one thing led to another and then I trained and I was in, I, you know, and so that training, so I think there's a lot that you can train. So the question is, can you train entrepreneurship? Um, I think there are certain things that you can train there. Um, and obviously you can practice and learn. Um, I do think there might be some, the thing I would say is I think there are some innate, there's an innate creativity in all of us, I believe. Um, but then I think for certain people, there's an innate, some of the characteristics that will be lead well to entrepreneurship, creativity, dealing with adversity, you know, vision, um, uh, ignorance in some ways. Like, you know, if I knew now of what I know about insurance three years ago, yeah. I don't, you know, maybe I wouldn't have started Cyber Fortress. You know, maybe <laughs> my co-founder and I were reminiscing the other day, we were, uh, I'll, I'll listen to me, and this might segue into one of your questions is that um, we are not insurance people, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was like, you know, we, and we were going to RIMS 2018, was in San Antonio, Texas. RIMS is the big, one of the big, you know, risk manager insurance conferences in the US. Yeah. And uh, I remember our strategy, we had a strategy for that conference, was like, not, no lemons, not look like a lemon. That was our strategy. Like we are clueless about insurance. We don't know the secret handshakes. We don't know enough about the industry. We don't know the lingo, the jargon. The so part of our strategy was like, let's go. Let's have good energy. Let's learn. Um, let's talk to people. Let's be open. Let's not. You know, it was like just not be lemons, right? Um, yeah. And if I knew everything now that I know, it's like God. You know, we might have taken different paths, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so. You know, the question with entrepreneurship as well, I was not a born, you know, I was, not, whether it was such a thing or was a born entrepreneur or not, but like, I wasn't the, I didn't have the lawn mowing business. Mm. Uh, I didn't do his lemonade stand. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't, you know, then creating my own like stock portfolio. That was my, you know, trading stocks, you know, in my, as my, my teens, that was like entrepreneurial. Um, I was really good at maths, you know, yeah. and I was really good at, school and achieving and success and setting goals and achieving them and setting goals and achieving them yeah. um and i think that and then you know and then facing adversity along the way with that um um but i think there was an inkling right and it's like for me in my journey i spent a lot of time at in financial services you know at goldman sachs um at the biggest hedge fund in the world bridgewater which has a particularly unique an amazing culture for the right people in that culture and horrible if it's not right for you. And it's very, you know, there's culture of radical truth and transparency. And look, we can all say, I wanna learn from my weaknesses, you know, learn from my mistakes. I wanna understand my weaknesses and strengths. But when you're put into that cauldron day to day, it's a very, very challenging environment mm -hmm. um, and certainly wasn't right for me. And so 
in many ways, like there was this, you know, creativity and, you know, search for purpose. And, uh, and also I will say, um, I don't like to be told what to do, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. And so, you know, you'll find that's pretty common with all entrepreneurs, whether it's, you know, startups to just start your small business. They wanted to be their own boss and mm -hmm. didn't want someone to tell, you know, tell them what to do. Um, and that's, so that's definitely my thing. I mean, I, I, that's the thing about me is, is uh, I, don't, I don't even think say that with any particular pride because I don't think it's a massively positive thing to do. No, like, absolutely I'm, not. I'm, I'm a really difficult person if I don't agree with you. And, and that's, you know, that's something that I need to be better at. But corporate life for me, um, I found it quite toxic for me. And that doesn't yes. mean for everyone else. It just for me, it made, it brought out the worst of me because I was constantly railing against it. So I worked for Hayes, like the largest, you know, um, one of the largest recruitment companies in the world. It's a great business to go and work and you can build a brilliant career there. But I was just railing against every kind of corporate element of it because it just didn't suit me. Um, and I think create, you touched on creativity there. Um, I, I think that's the other thing as well. And I, I, think, I think business allows you to be creative. Um, and I think that's a key thing to success. And I think corporate life doesn't. In, in many respects, corporate life is very... Um, it parents you. It, it, it's very all encapsulating. You can you can be cosseted by it, and and that's and and I think that's where I, I think people do have innate creativity, but unfortunately, I think it can get sort of structured out of them by you know we we like people to sit in certain silos, do certain jobs, and we don't allow them the kind of flexibility to look at other things, and therefore you know that creativity it doesn't disappear, but it dies down. It, it's like a muscle, I think. Yeah, I think that is right. And you see this as well, like, you know, all big corporates were a startup at some point. Yeah, exactly. Right? Um, and as they grew and grow and evolve and look in our in industry now, insurance, like some of these, you know, businesses are hundreds of years old. Yeah. Um, and they really have evolved to be very, very good at what they do. And often, you know, Bridgewater is obviously not 100 years old, but like, um, one, like Bridgewater was all about principles that was raised, you know, and he's written, written his book on principles that I'm sure a lot of your listeners have come across or seen. And it's a fascinating read if you haven't read it. Um, and the fact that he broke everything down to principles that made sense for him. Um, and then everything was being systemized so that it could be repeatable at an excellent level. And that's cool, you know, we've seen that, you know, it's in a way the sort of industrial revolution uh, revolution and what that did, like the, the production line to be able to manufacture and consistently, et cetera. But then you need people often typically in that machine to run those processes. And then that's where this sort of creativity goes because there's an element and most businesses and most corporates say they want to continue to, you know, innovate and evolve and improve those processes. But it's often challenging and often you are a cog in a machine, in someone else's machine. And that can be awesome at times. And I think it can be awesome for certain people, particularly if you're, you love that role you're playing and that really plays to your strengths, your drives, your wants, your purpose almost. Mm -hmm. um, and that can, that can work in a corporate setting. Um, but it could also be stifling. Yeah. And you know, and constraining and, uh, and, and, and mute 
um, a lot of that innate creativity um, that some people and lots of people often feel. Mm. Um, and I know I felt that and it sounds like you did as well. Mm. Um, uh, and then realizing then what, you know, levels of freedom or flexibility, I realize I like to be able to work from wherever I want, right? And so, but we've seen now, maybe a lot of people might've felt that, but they were stuck in a corporate environment, but now COVID. And potentially of this last year, they've had, I mean, they haven't quite yet to work wherever they want. They've got to now work from home instead of in the office, as opposed to maybe working in a coffee shop or yeah. working in Bali or whatever it might, might be. Um, but there's been a change in this past year, which has you know, changed the frame, I think, for potentially a lot of people in that corporate environment where that one of those aspects that may have been great for me. I know others, I know plenty of people like, they just love to go to work because they just like, I can't work at home. I don't want to be, you know, there. I like to go in there. I like to be, you know, to, to walk around, see what people are doing, talk to people, people walk into my office, walk into their office. Great. That's yeah. awesome. Right. Yeah. But I also know others where it's like, you know, for me, it's like, I want that flexibility to sort of be able to do that work from home because I sometimes want to be holed up in a, you know, in a dark closet, you know, with no distractions um, at home, or I want to be in an environment where conversation can happen. Mm. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, that's been a really interesting conversation over the last kind of 18 months, because I think there was definitely on my part specifically was, was a real ignorance to some of the challenges people were facing, right? Because, you know, I, I was living on my own. I had a spare bedroom, which I could set up as an office. Um, you know, whereas I was going, this is brilliant. I can work from home. I can be super flexible, but I don't have children that I've got a homeschool. So I don't have that challenge. And I'm not, or I'm not a kind of flat sharer, you know, you know, younger person, first, first role in like London, let's say, and you're living four people in a three bedroom house. And now you've got to work there as well. So it was, I, I, came, I came to it with a bit of ignorance. And, and I think what we're kind of seeing is that, and I was having a conversation with a client this morning saying, oh, are we going to see people go back to the office full time? Um, and I said, really, we're just going to have to set our businesses differently. We're going to have to allow that flexibility. We're going to have to allow people to um, to coin a friend of mine, James's phrase, be grown-ups. You know, we're, we're going to have to give them the freedom to say, if you want to work from home, work from home. Uh, but we're going to give you the tools to kind of say that you don't want to do that. And, and I think the closer we can get to the businesses that get closer to that true flexible model will be the most successful businesses. Because um, it's not easy to do, right? That's, that's the thing about corporate world. Running a you know, one of the large insurance companies have got thousands of employees. If we just went, oh, you just do what you like, you know, <laughs> it's, here's remote access, crack on, see how you go. It's not going to work. There, there needs to be some rules and regulations, but, you know, it's, yeah. the, the, the closer we can get, the better, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, um, as humans, we need connection. Yeah. And so there's a question of how we get that. Yeah. And so there are a number of companies who have, you know, pre-pandemic had gone to a remote working model, a fully remote. Yeah. Um, everything from like, I think, Automatic, I think is the company behind WordPress. So yeah. done this for like, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years. Yeah. Um, GitLab is another one that's, that's famous for this. And, uh, and they'll do cool, you know, and this is pre-pandemic. So they had things where like, when you join, I, I know someone who I used to work with, went and took a job there. Um, and so she could work from home and be with her, her kid and this and that. Um, when she, when she joined, they give you like a, a gift card and then you can go to their online store to buy your swag. 
right? Because say you bought, join a tech company, you want like the hoodie or the thing. Most tech companies, you know, you join the first day and someone hands it to you. There's a storage room full of this gear or swag. It's around, gets given out. If you're fully remote, there's no such thing. But they had an online store. You get a credit. They're not making you pay for it for the store. So it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then similarly, like you get an allowance to buy a good desk, a stand-in desk, monitor, a good microphone, a headset, and different things like based on your role. If you're going to be in sales, like that needs to be a good camera, needs to be a good microphone or whatnot. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of, so you had companies doing that before. They also would do things where they would take all that spend that they may be spending on office space, potentially like when you're talking about, you know, the, it may be being, you know, expensive office space in Silicon Valley or New York or Boston or even Austin, Texas right now. Um, and then using that not only on the things we just described, but like how do we come together as a company once a quarter? Yep. You know, how do teams come together and spend a week or a weekend or time or days together to bond, to do work, to collaborate together, but also to do, to not to do work. Um, and so I think that for us, like we went, we're a small five person company that was already had some people across the board anyway. And so we went fully remote. We gave up our little co-working space um, and we're not planning to go back there, but it's been challenging not coming together for a year now you know, in person. Um, and so that's the thing I think is really interesting. And, and like the big corporates, what does that office look like? Does it look like a collaboration space? Yeah. Do you have places you can hot desk? But does everyone have a desk anymore? Because does everyone need a designated desk at the office? Mm. Um, but at the same time, you know, some people don't want to work at home all the time. And there might be days where you don't want to work at home. So, mm. wow. But then, cool, what an opportunity for creativity. Yeah, that's what I see. I mean, I, I just I just think we're going to go to this kind of clubhouse. And I don't mean the app. There's this clubhouse culture yeah. Of, of, yeah, you know, a really flexible workspace. And as, as you said, I think it's really important what you said. We might need to come together to not be doing loads and loads of work. Maybe we come together to hang out for the day, you know, just, just to get some energy back, um, you know, because, uh, and, and, you know, I have, everyone has good days and bad days. Like today... I'd have killed to have some kind of uh, colleagues to, you know, to be honest, have a little bitch to <laughs> about things that have not gone my way. And I think that's important. And, and I think we, we underplay the value. Well, I think we can be guilty of underplaying the value of those, um, you know, water cooler moments and those kind of little kind of breakout coffees that you have in kind of keeping the momentum going. And I think the good thing... Look, there's, there's, I don't want to say all oh, the good things that come out of the pandemic because it's risky how it kind of comes out. But I think what's shone a light on is that people have been at home long enough now that they're kind of valuing the things they miss. And, and I hope there's a path to kind of creating a, a better kind of corporate culture because um, there's nothing inherently wrong with, you know, big corporate jobs in exciting businesses. Because the other thing about entrepreneurship is become very fashionable. And, and I think that's really dangerous because, you know, it's easy for me to be fast and loose because I don't have children and I don't have responsibilities. And, and therefore, yeah, if I, lost, if I lost all of my money in my business, it probably wouldn't be a disaster. Um, but it, it, your risk profile changes. That's, that, I yes. think that's why we see people at the start of their kind of lives are much more kind of risk accommodating. And then at the end of their careers, they tend to be more risk accommodating as well. And actually, sometimes the bit in the middle is the tricky bit because um, the responsibilities. Yeah, I think that that is one aspect. And I think that does play out. I think it's also how you interpret risk as well. 
Mm -hmm. um, and also it doesn't mean quitting the job and then having to start the company. No. Um, and, and so that's where we, you know, so say there are a lot of people who are thriving and I have some good friends who are thriving in a corporate environment um, and they're, you know, the relationships they've built there now allow them to do their job somewhat effortless um, and, uh, and they enjoy the culture of the organization they're within and the opportunities it, it provides them. I know others where like the risky thing is like they're actually mis miserable. Yeah. They're kind of miserable in the day-to-day. -day. They're not really lit up with the work they're doing or the nature of the culture or the nature of the environment. And so it's like, but it's comfortable because, you know, the bills are getting paid and the kids are getting, elect you know, are, are getting what they, what they need and provided for. Um, but it's that question, like, what's the biggest risk here? Mm -hmm. is, it, is it to leave and do something different or is it actually to stay where you are for another 10, 20 years? We all only have one, you know, one precious life mm -hmm. to go and live. Um, but it doesn't have to be, you know, quitting the, the day job and like, okay, now I'm going to like, you know, start something and I have no idea yet. I mean, we've seen so many people now starting, you know, podcasts as well. So like yeah. that, they might be in the, this, have this, you know, this, you know, corporate job, but now they're maybe in that industry, they're now creating a podcast around it or related to that and started to, or there's other opportunities there, which could be. And I think we, we talked before about like this idea of like, you know, entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it can work and I think it can be challenging. I think, you know, all big companies, you know, you know, are trying and particularly the insurance are trying to innovate. Right. Um, it can also be challenging and they often create innovation groups and some are successful and some are not. And how do they find innovation or invest in innovation and invest in companies, you know, to try to access that innovation, but then actually integrate it in and actually. But there are different ways, there are different roles within an organization to maybe like really find, make that change and not, you know, to, to, to try to find something more aligned with some of your maybe innate drive or innate purpose. Mm. I, I'm a, I'll be honest, I, I'm on the skeptical side about the term entrepreneurship. Um, I think I think it's a bad term personally. Yeah, um, because it's because it's sort of I do think that like there's this idea of trying to create, you know, I like the other ones which I've seen in other companies where they create skunk works projects. Yeah. Right. It's like, hey, we're trying to we're trying to do something. It's like, okay, you guys just go over there. And you kind of got some free reign and you're sort of like you're outside the normal structures and go and see if you can figure something out. Yeah. And so I think that's because it is it's different from entrepreneurship, but yeah. it also can lead to opportunity and then that might turn into something more entrepreneurial, maybe it gets spun out as its own business. Mm. Um, uh, and I think you see you see examples of those there where like bigger companies sort of incubated something that then became its own standalone business. Mm. Um, but uh, but yeah. and I think, yeah, anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, I just wanted to jump in there because I think it's about giving people responsibility and budgets. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think um, I, I, did, I did a great podcast with the guys, uh, Nick from Casco, and what we were saying, that the problem with trying things in big insurance companies, give them a target, give them a, give them a ROI they've got to deliver, even on a, you know, give it, give it a value so you can see if it's actually going to give you a return and give people the freedom to test things. You know, there's no point, you know, there's no point starting an innovation function and then 
either not implementing stuff, not spinning it up, not, 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 not actually kind of getting getting out there and testing it. So, you know, I know we can't just like throw money around a thing, but, but having, allowing people the flexibility again, giving them the kind of the authority to kind of make those decisions and say, we're going to take a bit of budget and we're going to try this new thing. Yeah. Cause then that, I think then entrepreneurship has, has some merit because you're taking some money you're investing it you're giving it a go on on your judgment i think if you don't give the kind of freedom to do that then it has a falsehood it's not it's it's you know it's meaningless otherwise it's just, it's just kind of keeping people entertained and then and then it kind of looks at the negative side of corporate culture which is a bit mummying and not really you know you're not giving people responsibility basically yeah uh, i think this um interesting nuances related to the insurance industry specifically related to this as well in the sense that it's in the business of risk management mm. right and in putting capital at risk um and uh and stewarding that mm. and so it's interesting, we feel, you know, they went on the innovation there, some of the things that we sort of observed this sort of structural is that we're, you know, as an insure tech trying to partner with a big company, we're asking them to take a chance on something new with us, yeah. right? And particularly if it's a new kind of underwriting, a new this or new something like that, where if it goes wrong and blows up, then it's really bad for the company. Um, and so, you know, and it probably cost them their job. Yeah. But if they don't find good opportunities or they want, you know, does that cost them the job? Not so much, right? And if they, you know, these things take time. So I think you're right, like, how are the incentives set up there? Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure at times they're often, I'm not sure, it's, and I'm not saying it's easy to set up those incentives either. No, 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 I completely agree. I mean, one of the challenges that I've foreseen is that we, we had a lot of people from kind of essentially tech backgrounds coming into insurance. And um, everyone likes to talk in, in the kind of agile culture, uh, minimum viable product. And, and as uh, one of my guests previously pointed out, it's very hard to do a minimum viable product in insurance because if you're offering an insurance product, it, it, it can't be, it can't, it can't fail. It has to work because you have to honor it. So um, you could, it's very difficult to kind of adopt that mindset. So it naturally imbues a bit less speed. There's a bit more risk um kind of management and so therefore the approach is slightly different um but yeah that, I, I don't envy that challenge and i think that's it's very easy for me to sit here as a one-man band going oh you should be allowed to be as flexible as you like <laughs> oh totally i mean for us i mean it was um you know truly two years to mvp yeah so uh, an mvp was a fully you know a uh, an insurance policy sold excess and surplus lines in Texas, you know, by a licensed MGA, us, with a licensed uh, adjuster, us, and, uh, uh, and part, you know, paper from a, you know, you know, an ENS carrier in the state of Texas. And, uh, you know, all these kind of things, which were just like, wow, like what a lift, you know, with a policy management system that works, a claim system that can pay, that can and will pay claims. Yeah. And so you're right, you know, the whole doing MVP on that product side, pretty challenging to, you know, to, to MVP an insurance policy. Mm. Um, and so, and that has its own things as well. And then like, you know, how, you know, then how quickly, because really you want to get something out as soon as possible and then continue to learn and adapt. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and very difficult to do in this environment. I'm, I'm really conscious of our time and uh, don't want to overstay my, my welcome. So I always like to ask people, you know, Hugh, what's, what's the next 12 months looking like for Cyber Fortress? What, what's, what's kind of key on your, your agenda for the next 12 months? You know, the, the, our real focus here is, is in, you know, some of those distribution partnerships, um, getting those inked and operationalized. That is basically our biggest focus right now. We've done a ton of work to get, you know, a product and we have, you know, to be able to have a product that works uh, and an underwriting model that supports that. Um, and it's really about like getting like, you know, and this is, you know, classic insurance as well, distribution, right? Yeah. So that's really our, uh, our, our big focus for the next 12 months. Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for joining me on this kind of wide ranging, <laughs> kind of very like a very non-structured kind of podcast. And, uh, that, that, uh, you know, it's been it's been really good fun. And, um, yeah, I look forward to kind of seeing what you guys get up to with Cyber Fortress. But like, thank you once again for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Alex. Thank you so much. Thanks for hosting me and uh, keep up the great work with your listeners. Thank you. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.